0: Well, thank you for the extraordinary way that you, in your words, speak to a diverse people like us, coming from all different places, different things on our minds, different experiences of life at the moment, and yet you, you speak to each of us where we're at. We pray that you might do that this morning. We pray that we might hear what you're saying. We pray that for us as individuals and us as a church together too. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you, you've ever, um, you've ever rewatched a, a film or, or reread a book because something happens at the end that completely changes the perception of, of what's gone on beforehand. You realise you've missed it on all kinds of levels. You ever done that? So, a few examples out there that that come to mind for me. The the credits rise, the final page turns, and you think, I, I've, I've got to process that again. I, I've not really understood what's happening, but now I need to go back. I think Sixth Sense, if you've seen it. I'm not going to spoil it for you. I think a story so well written, the narrative so compelling, the, ac- the account so perfectly put together that, that you should have seen the ending coming, but you didn't quite. The clues were there, and you missed them, but when you go back again, it, it works on a whole other level. The themes interweave so well. I sometimes wonder if we're just a little bit too familiar with the gospel account. But because we know the end, because we know the end of the story, so the little details along the way, they should mean so much more to us, but we kind of skate over them. We know the game changer. And so we should be reading earlier in the accounts in a different kind of way. Luke, Matthew, Mark or John, in fact, have, have crafted their little theological biographies of Jesus carefully for us, to reveal to us who Jesus is, what kind of a king, what kind of a person he is, what it means for us daily to follow him. And yet we so easily skate over the details. Because they're so familiar, we've done them before, then we don't really slow And yet because we know the end, they should be so much more pregnant with meaning. I think these verses for this morning, which are a slightly interesting little account that you get, are are full of meaning. When you know what happens at the end, they point us to what's to come. They give us glimpses of what's going to happen as the pages turn. They stretch our eyes forward to the climax of the narrative particularly. What we're going to do, we're going to have a time just looking over the passage, retelling, understanding what's going on, and then just thinking particularly about three aspects of Jesus' identity that this passage points us to. The first thing to notice, you get an obedient family in this passage. It's one of the interesting things that Luke does in the first couple of chapters and right the way through the Gospel, is that he shows us Jesus and his family are obedient Jews. He has taken great care to present that to us. They are faithful Jews. So maybe if you've been around, as Andy's done the previous ones in this series, you've spotted some of that. Remember back in the previous account we looked at, he was in the temple at Jerusalem, eight days old. They, they name him, they present him for circumcision. Verse 22 to 24, When the time came for the purification rites, required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written, in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. You see, law of the Lord, law of the Lord, law of the Lord. He is showing us carefully that they are obedient. He's there with his highlighter. They are doing exactly what the law requires. Or, Or today... Twelve years on, as Peter says, from the last one, we're in the temple again, But and this was the norm for them, verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. What we perhaps missed, though, is they didn't all have to go. If you track it back into the Old Testament, you realise just the men had to go, just Joseph had to go. Jesus would have had to have gone the year after, when he came of age, verse 13, uh, chapter 13, age 13. (laughs) But the whole family make the trip. Everybody is there. This is an obedient family. This is a family that follows the law of the Lord. Every year they head to Jerusalem. It would have been about an 80 mile round trip. It would have been a dangerous trip. The nature of the travel, robbers, wasn't an easy task. Yet every year, they obediently follow the law of the Lord. They're there for the festival of the Passover. to remember the Passover? The annual celebration where God's people remember his kindness, his power, rescuing them from Egypt, defeating Pharaoh, bringing them from slavery to freedom. Every household there was a death, either the death of a, of a lamb or the firstborn son. And there were Jesus and Mary and Joseph. Presumably there are younger siblings as well at the temple, remembering this Passover rescue. But do you see what happens? Do you see what rests upon their faithfulness? Do you see why it matters that they are obedient? I take it because the one who came to fulfill the law must have absolute obedience. that he was the one who came to, to live the flawless, righteous life, to fulfill the law. He must have been himself the perfect Passover lamb. There must never have been a moment when he's not observed the law. And so their obedience matters for us. I wonder if that is why Luke is so clear in wanting us to see they tick the boxes. Because... His obedience matters for us. The cross is not sufficient if Jesus was sinful. It doesn't work. So they are an obedient family, Luke shows us. But secondly, they're a divided family as well. You read again, it's every parent's nightmare. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day, then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends, and when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Before we ring social services, it's likely that the the custom would have been a huge caravan travelling together for safety because it was so far, because it was so dangerous and there would have been family, wider extended family and friends and neighbours. And so you can imagine a scenario where we're Joseph thinks he's with Mary and Mary thinks he's within Joseph and, and, and they all think he's with his cousins. It's, it's like going around the supermarket with Josh, my third. He doesn't stick with you. And yet the first night, verse 44, it's time for hot chocolate. And where's he gone? Where is Jesus? The temperature begins to rise. I thought you had... You, oh. The language, verse 48, though, shows they were frantic. When they actually find him, there has been a panic. They've been going through a nightmare for the last three days. Son, why have you treated us like this? To, To lose a child would be horrible. It breaks our heart when we see that kind of thing happening in the news. But to lose this one, the one they expected so much of, the bizarre birth visitors that Luke's described, the angels and the shepherd and the sheep and prophecies from old men like Simeon. Women at the temple like Anna. You can see why they are in such a panic. Parents were astonished that they've been anxiously searching for him. I suspect that's understatement. But you know, maybe we shouldn't be surprised. Maybe we shouldn't be surprised. Do you remember Simeon? From a couple of weeks ago, we met him at the temple with Andy. He was so excited to see this child. He was buzzing. And yet his parting words to Mary put a bit of a a dampener on things. Verse 34, then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. He's going to be amazing. He is the one we've been waiting for. But he's going to bring division. Mary, he's going to bring personal pain for you. Like a sword piercing her own soul. I wonder if we meant to have those words ringing in our ears as we see him as a 12-year-old and we begin to sense something of the pain that they're going to go through. Maybe just the first glimpses of Simeon's prophecy coming to fruition. But then look at how Jesus responds when they find him. In Luke, these are the very first words that come from his mouth. This is the first thing he says in Luke. First time he speaks, we're meant to listen well, and he says to them, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Do you see where the conflict and the pain has come from? It's come from his identity. It's the tension of being a son of Mary, but also the son of God. At this early stage, his identity brings the pain. He refers to God as his father with his very first words. By all accounts, that would be very unusual. Blasphemous to the ears of some showing an intimacy that was unheard of. And yet, because of who he is, because of his father, he said he had to be there. He had to be in the temple. Why? Why did he have to be in the temple? It's interesting, as you track through Luke, There are a number of key places that Jesus says he had to do something or he must do something. It's literally, it was necessary for me to do this. You get a number of places. So, for example, 4 verse 43, I must proclaim the good news. It was necessary for me to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. That is why I was sent. Or, Or 9 verse 22, He must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Or 13 and verse 33, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Or 24 and verse 7, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified on the third day, be raised again. So right through Luke we get this drumbeat of it is necessary, this must happen, I have to do this. And he has to be in the temple. These things define his mission. They define why he's come. And when we look carefully at these verses, we see already there, he must do something. But why the temple? Why must he be there? Well, the temple was the place of God's presence. It was the place where you would go to meet with God. And it was the place of learning. It was where teaching about God happened. So, So, in a sense, where else would Jesus be? The temple was, in one sense, very much where he belonged. With his father, learning from his father. And the temple would go on and be a pivotal place in years to come. As the narrative unfolds, as the pages turn, the temple is vital. It was his commitment to who he was and what he must do that brings the pain and the conflict, even at the early stages. I wonder if there's something of a reminder for us on the way past of the fact that Jesus brings division. Of course he brings unity. We've just celebrated that around the Lord's Supper. He brings a broken, alienated, divided humanity together through the cross. He he makes a new family of God's people. But as well as bringing unity, he always brings division. I don't know if you've experienced something of that over Christmas with your family. The awkward conversations. The fact that you're here now and the rest of your family are at home. Jesus always divides. The Christmas edition of Time magazine this year. They're looking again at the evidence of Jesus. It's not great. Um, The conclusion, they bizarrely finish the article with this. They say it doesn't matter who Jesus of Nazareth was or what he was. What's most important is the lessons he taught. You see, people are often very happy to admire, to accept aspects of Jesus. They love ethical teaching. They love what he says. Who could disagree with loving your neighbour or turning the other cheek? They like his example. They enjoy him at Christmas. It's nice to sing about him when he's a baby. But start to press them on the evidence, on the historical nature of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension and he still brings controversy and thank you we're just going to focus on on his ethical teaching because we can all agree on that he still brings division we're no better than him he will bring division to us in our lives as well as we live and speak for him as we must take up our cross and deny ourselves and follow him But it's a funny little account, isn't it? This 12 year old boy, Jesus. It's all we get of Jesus at this age in the Bible. There are some much later non biblical fictional accounts of Jesus. Weird and fantastical. The product of imagination and agendas rather than reality. There's Jesus who makes birds out of clay and brings them to life. Jesus who gets into a squabble and curses people and kills them. That kind of thing. But that's much later. This is the authentic account we get. So why is it here? Why does Luke start off Jesus' words with this? How does it help us to know the certainty of the things we've been taught? If you remember the very start of Luke. Well, I want to say it's a signpost ahead. We see, firstly, we've seen it already that he is God's son. His identity as God's son. He refers to God as his father. He is at the temple because it is his father's house. There is confusion and there is discord because of his identity as God's son. But a couple of other things as well, and that is the first thing you see, which is weird, of a wise teacher. We've got this strange sight, this 12-year-old boy, sitting among the teachers, asking questions. Amazing people. They're amazed by his understanding. They're amazed by his grasp of the law. He's, he's not teaching the teachers. Sometimes the children's Bibles show that. I don't think that's what's going on at all. I think he's, he's engaging in the kind of Q&A dialogue you would have in the temple. He's questioning the rabbis. He's learning. He's challenging. It seems a pretty happy occasion as he's there. Until the parents turn up and whisk him off home again with a flea in his ear. But there he is. You get the glimpse early on of him being a wise teacher, and he grows in wisdom, verse 52. What's that going to look like? Well, again, flick the page, chapter 4 and verse 31. He went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. They were amazed at his teaching because he had authority. All the people were amazed and said, what is this teaching? So when he's a 12-year-old, we get the glimpse of something, of more of what he's going to be like. We see his wisdom and his learning then, As the pages turn, it's fleshed out. But fast forward again and you'll see him in the temple courts. And you'll see him wisely answering teachers. But they aren't amazed this time. They're belittled, they're threatened. They look for a way to kill him. They want to do away with him. So I wonder if Luke is just showing us at the beginning something of the wise teacher in embryo. There's a glimpse here of a twelve year old boy, but there's the promise of more to come. His his words here in the temple bring astonishment and esteem. Later in the temple they're gonna bring anger and enemies. He's a wise teacher, but he's God's king as well. Where's that? Well, one of the people in the background in Luke 1 and Luke 2, as he writes, is the prophet Samuel. You get a number of allusions, I think, through the verses, just a couple of them. here. The first is in Mary's song. picture of Mary, if you turn back a page, Mary is, is painted in very similar terms to a lady in the Old Testament called Hannah. Hannah was the mother of Samuel. Hannah's unable to have children, and yet the Lord enables her to conceive, and And like Mary, she sings a song to the Lord. Hannah begins, my heart rejoices in the Lord. She ends with powerful news of a a great king who's going to judge the world. Mary begins, my soul magnifies the Lord. And she ends with news of God's faithfulness and mercy for Israel. So if Hannah is in some sense like Mary, then Samuel is in some sense like Jesus. I think that's reinforced in verse 52, the end of chapter 2. Jesus grows in wisdom, stature, and in favour with God and man. Samuel, and it says 1 Sam 2.26, and the boy continued to grow in stature and in favour with the Lord and with men. So I I wonder if Luke is trying to paint these parallels for us. You've got Mary and Hannah and therefore you've got Samuel and Jesus. Why are we meant to join the dots? What's Luke doing, speaking in those terms, using that kind of language? Well, I, I wonder if it is a starting and a finishing of God's kings. Because Samuel is the prophet who begins the monarchy. Jesus is the king who ends the monarchy. Jesus is the one who, who comes to rule his people perfectly. Jesus is the one who will come and judge the nations as Hannah sang in her song. So do you see in... 12 little verses, 11 little verses, you get so much there. It's so pregnant and when we get to the end and we look back, we see something of what Luke is doing, weaving together his narrative. And then we have Mary as she finishes. She treasures all these things in our hearts. I take it there's something of a model there for us as well. Something for us as we don't just zip over the verses as we normally would. Maybe things that point us forward, maybe that encourage us to keep reading, to slow down, to chew. If you're someone here this morning and you're unsure as to who Jesus is, I'd love to give you a nudge to take time with Mary to ponder, to treasure, to consider the identity of Jesus. There are different ways you might do that. If you've been brought by a Christian, then chat to them. That's the best thing you can do. Ask them why they're convinced of who Jesus is. If you're local and around, we have something on from the 19th of January called Christianity Explored, a chance to look at Jesus in Mark's Gospel and to bring your questions, to eat good food. And if you've not got a Bible, as we always say, please take that with you. If you don't own a Bible and you read it, we'd love you to have one, because we think in there you find Jesus. They are words about him. What's interesting as the pages turn, is it seems the last glimpse that we get of Mary in the Bible comes in the second half of Luke in a book called Acts. And Mary there is praying. She's praying as one who trusts Jesus. Just on the cusp of the most monumental church growth ever seen, as God pours out his Holy Spirit. But here is Mary. Maybe the years of treasuring or pondering or chewing, watching her son has led her to believe in him, led her to trust him as her Lord. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you what we've seen of him, this early stage in his life, the signposts that point us forward. Thank you that we've seen him as, as your son. That he calls you father and say, because of him, we can call you father. Father. Thank you that we've seen him as the wise teacher. And we can read his words. We can see true wisdom from you. And thank you that we see him as something of the final king as well, who loves and leads perfectly. And yet, Lord, we see something already of the pain and the conflict and the division that he brings in micro with his family and yet pointing ahead to the cross, pointing ahead to future encounters in the temple. And Lord, we know something of that conflict ourselves, so we pray that we might trust you in the midst of it, that we might follow in his footsteps And that we might love you and look to you when life is hard. Thank you for Jesus. Amen.